Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our second episode devoted to the saga of Thord Menace. And this one is uh, turning out to be a little bit of a surprise to me. It, it is to me, too. It's got a lot more in the way of well-drawn characters and compelling plot than I was anticipating. I, I, you know, I wasn't yeah. familiar with this one, and I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised so far. Which might go some way toward explaining the nearly two and a half hours we yeah. spent talking about the first part. Not mm. excusing, just explaining. Well, I mean, I, for one, like to savor a banquet when it's laid out before me, John. And this saga so far has been a real smorgasbord of the sort of things that we enjoy about these stories. <laughs> Are you hungry, Andy? I'm getting the impression that you're hungry. <laughs> no, no, I'm speaking metaphorically, although I do love a good smorgasbord. I see, I see. So, uh, so a Thord man is a metaphorical smorgasbord, smorgasbord, orgasbord. Carry on, Templeton. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Now, well, we only got through five chapters of this saga last time, which is not yeah, in two very... and a half hours. It really was. I, I after I finished the edit, I could not <laughs> believe how long that was. But the rune sack did us. take up a good chunk of that. Yeah. Um, but it was a long one for five chapters. And I know we've said this before, but I still feel like there were stones left unturned. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that inside this text, that most readers. Even most scholars tend to ignore. There's a pretty interesting little saga here. Even our resident illustrator, Jacob Faust, got carried away with this one. He made two illustrations for us last time and three for this episode because, as he Mm -hmm. said, there are just so many fun characters and scenes in this saga. Right. Well, we said last time that this is is usually classed as one of the fully fictional sagas. Mm -hmm. It's pretty literary in its construction. That can be a problem if the author isn't competent and is merely creating a pastiche of saga tropes. But if the author knows how to use the material, a late saga can serve as kind of a literary homage to the saga tradition. Is that what we're calling this now? An homage? Well, let's have a look at what happened last time. Maybe we can decide. <laughs> I see. That was an attempt at a transition. Okay. You ruined it by calling attention to it. Last time on The Saga of Thord Menace. The well-off family of Thordhesa in Norway runs afoul of the royal family when King Sigurd Snake assaults the wife of Thord's son Klup. The youngest of Klup's three brothers, 15-year-old Thord Thordeson, insists that the brothers engage in a spot of regicide for revenge. They interrupt the king's party and kill the king, but Klup is cut down by the king's men, and the other Thordesons barely escape with their lives. Now hunted as king killers in Norway, the family flees to Iceland to make a new life for themselves in exile. Young Thord soon runs afoul of the local chieftain, Skeggy of Midfjord, when the two men exchange social snubs. But that budding enmity hits a snag when Thord rescues Skeggy's son, Aeth, from a near-fatal boating accident and becomes foster father to Aeth Skeggison. Thord next tangles with Skeggy's nephew, Asbjorn, but that feud takes a twist as well when Asbjorn falls in love with Thord's sister, Sigrid the Dish. Skeggy at first discourages his nephew's crush because it's obviously a terrible idea. But when Thord is nearly killed in a dispute over a costly cloak, Skeggy intervenes to save him from a mob and exacts a betrothal of Sigrith and Asbjorn as the unspoken price of his assistance. Now the best of frenemies, Skeggy and Thord continue their hands-off approach to one another for a time. But their fragile detente gets derailed when Asbjorn's brother Orm also takes a romantic interest in Sigrid. So that would be his brother's fiancé. Technically, yes. Orm's a bit of a goon. 
He makes himself obnoxious, forcing his company on secret despite warnings from both Skeggy and Thor. Finally, Thor's had enough and lops off various parts of Orm, including his head. Skeggy and Thor nearly come to blows, but Aid's intervention sends them both away, still angry and still believing that their feud must inevitably end in more bloodshed. And that's the story so far. And all that was only five chapters of the saga. Yeah, this is an author who believes in packing as much as he can into his story. And as we were saying a minute ago, a lot of twists and turns in this saga are popular motifs we see in other stories. Right. And we've been playing Spot the Saga a bit with this one. And yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. the influences are very clear. Yeah, So let's uh, let's return to that question from before. Is this an homage? I mean, we could at least call it fan fiction. I think mm. we actually did call it fan fiction in the last episode. But no, I- I'm talking about what Tolkien would have called sub-creation. Are you really? Uh, a text that responds to an existing truth with a meaningful echo of that truth. I love that subject. A little grandiose for this one, perhaps. I don't know whether it is. I mean, certainly, this doesn't carry the note of Christian allegory that Tolkien was talking mm-hmm. about. But from within a secular tradition, we may have a successful homage on our hands. And speaking back to a story in ways that echo and complement that story... That's essentially what Tolkien or Owen Bradfield's idea of subcreation is. Well, now I want to teach my Tolkien class again. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Hmm. Well, we'll see with this saga. There's still quite a lot to go. But you're right that we're already seeing a lot of, well, well, call it echo or homage or whatever you want. But this saga just demands comparison to some of the more well-known older sagas. It's got some things in common with the outlaw sagas of Gisli and Grettir, like we talked about, and some in common with the regional feud cycle sagas. Yeah, and this saga also shares a general location with our last saga, Bard Snafelsas. Hell, it features several of the same people from that saga, mm-hmm. especially Skeggy of Midfjord and his son, Aeth. Yeah. Now, in Barth's saga, Skeggy is the guy who had the ambiguous relationship with Barth's daughter, Helga. This is something I didn't even realize, to be honest, until we were recording last episode. Rather embarrassing. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if you've seen one Skeggy. Uh, and then <laughs> Barth took revenge by befriending that Skeggy's son, Aeth, and seducing Skeggy's daughter, Thordis, which produced a son, Guest, who would eventually die of having his eyes gouged out by his father after converting to Christianity. Yeah, that was such a strange saga. Yes, it was. Uh, and I think we'll be able to see just how much of it seems to float over the top of other stories told about this region mm-hmm. based on which families do and don't get mentioned in this saga. Okay, but hang on, though. Before we dive in, uh, there's something else that I think we need to bring up here. All right. Dazzle me. Well, I don't know if this is going to be dazzling. It's manuscripts. Manuscripts. I Well, I mean, I might think that's dazzling, but I'm a very specific audience. Well, it's it's just that I think Thord Saga gives us a chance to talk about something that we, we usually skip over in our drive to get started on the storytelling. So, mm-hmm. Okay. So what you want to talk about are the two different manuscript traditions for Thord Saga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You see, many sagas exist in multiple written forms, and sometimes the stories they tell are quite different. And mm-hmm. even when they're not, the little differences do add up. This is something that, you know, medievalists and classicists need to pay attention to when uh, when working. Uh, certainly even early modern scholars uh, need to pay yep. attention to variations within the manuscript traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- so there's a lot of invisible work Uh, When you're reading a text from one of these eras, a lot of invisible work done by editors and translators in deciding which manuscripts to privilege over the other ones. Right. In the case of Thor's saga, we've got two versions of the saga. Uh, To be more accurate, we have two very different text traditions 
both claiming to be Thor's saga. Uh, the most extensive piece of work on this was written about 20 years ago, and it is a dissertation by Elizabeth Ward. Oh, yeah, you sent me this. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a couple of chapters in, two chapters in so far. It's really very interesting. Yeah, it is. And part of Ward's argument is that scholars tend to be more interested in a perfect version of a text than the ones we've actually got on the paper mm-hmm. or on the vellum. Um, it's what she calls the supra saga. Now, as she explains, there's a danger of becoming so focused on the idea of a pure or perfect version of a saga that the actual physical text that we have is treated like a like a pale shadow of the quote unquote original. Yeah, it's not universally true, but certainly some scholarship does seem to act that way. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we've occasionally been a bit guilty of it ourselves, really, since we don't tend to dig down into the real nitty gritty details of the manuscript traditions. Now, in the case of Thord's saga, the two surviving versions are both using many of the same sources, including Lanama Book and several other sagas, uh, especially Laxdala Saga and Njal's saga. Yeah, and this saga wants you to know that it knows about those sagas. Which isn't unusual, especially for later Mm -hmm. sagas like this. We see that quite often, this reference to other sagas. But what's not clear is whether the two versions of this story are actually related to each other. Mm -hmm. It's not evenly split, first of all. One version exists only in a single incomplete manuscript, which we call a fragment, and the other version exists in multiple manuscripts that are complete, telling Thord's entire story. I mean, you could say it would be reasonable to go with the more complete manuscripts, especially when you're preparing an edition. But it's Mm -hmm. not that easy because there's a very real chance that that other fragment tradition predates the second more complete tradition. Yeah, and I think that's generally agreed upon by scholars who care about this kind of thing. But again, no definitive answers about which version is closer to an original. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's highly unlikely that there is even a common original for both versions. Right, which means in practical terms that there really is more than one telling of Thor's story. So an editor has to begin by deciding what to privilege, what to recognize as Thor's saga. It's a version of that classic construction of conference paper titles, right? What do we talk about when we talk about Thor's saga? Or what is Thor's saga and why not? Yes, and that's only a start. I mean, let's say you're an editor coming to this saga or sagas and trying to produce an edition. You're doing the edition or a translation for something like Penguin. Does the editor want to create an edition of one or the other telling of the saga? Or do they want to construct a diplomatic edition that incorporates the elements of both stories? Andy, uh, just one more time. I want want to hear you say again, you're preparing an edition for, say, Penguin. It just sounds so nice when somebody says that. (laughs) Yes, but we're not. (laughs) I know. You can let me dream. But what if we Uh, were? Yeah, no, the the diplomatic editions uh, are always somewhat problematic, I think. Uh, Not terrible. Sometimes they're quite useful. But they're always at least problematic. Building a version of a text Frankenstein style from the the best parts of various iterations means you're either A, claiming to have a clearer vision of the text than the people who wrote it, or B, you're inventing something new out of old parts and only complicating the manuscript's transmission story further. Right. As one of our professors at UConn used to say, thinking in terms of trying to reunite different versions of a story means ignoring how the vast majority of readers at the time thought about stories. Chasing a non-existent perfect version of the text means obscuring any given version of the story as it actually was for medieval readers and audiences. Yeah. And perhaps even more problematic for constructing a Thord saga out of the two manuscript traditions is the fact that the two versions seem to have different agendas. Uh, Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Ward does a nice job of highlighting these in her dissertation. 
How could one reasonably create a fair diplomatic edition of the saga from the two sources without radically changing the original meaning and purpose behind them? So when we talk about the double life of Thord Menes' saga, we're not really talking about two versions of a single saga. It's two different texts, both using some of the same sources to tell the same story differently. Right. And that seems to be most scholars' opinions. Right? I mean, we're we're very much on the shoulders of giants here. I know about this from what I've read from those scholars, and I'm willing to accept their word for it for the present. Hmm. I was born knowing these things, John. Yeah, you were. No. So uh, now we're back to basically shrugging off the manuscript problem. I think we've mentioned but, it now. But right. We're wiser for the journey, Andy. Yes. Wiser yes, for we the are. journey. Yes. Uh, I like so, how hey, we, we, we sneak these. I like how we sneak these things in before we start the kind of summary and discussion <laughs> of the saga. So that right. we can get our little, you know, our little uh, interests and uh, rabbit holes that right. we've gone down in. Get, for the, Get our nerd thing. cred uh, covered before we start talking about this. Yeah. Uh, Andy, why don't we get back to our version of Thor's saga, whatever it may be? <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. All right. So uh, what have we got in store this time? Well, let me just check here. I've got some notes about it somewhere around here. I certainly hope you do. Ah, uh, yes. In this episode, Thord Menace leaves his farm at Ost to travel east and away from the troubles in Midfjord. But word of Orm's untimely demise spreads quickly, and soon he's being pursued by Orm's family and business partners, who are all eager to avenge their fallen kinsmen. As one ambush follows quickly on the heels of another, Thord Menace will have to stay on his toes, perhaps with the help of some new friends like Thorhall and his pretty wife Olaf. He'll manage to stay alive just a little longer. Will any of Orm's kinsmen have what it takes to catch Thord and put him down? How many men will Thord cut in half? And will he be able to resist the healing touch of the lovely Olaf? Find out as Saga Thing takes on The Saga of Thord Menace, chapter 6 to 9. All right. So essentially, this episode is just going to be a conga line of people trying to kill Thorth in revenge for the death of Orm. Yep. Uh, I think I'll forego the pleasure of further keen encounters of our wits in the interest of getting underway. That's a lot of words to say. Let's get started. Part 9. A friend in Dreedy is a friend in Deedy? Look, I know, I know I should hate that, John. That's really stupid, <laughs> but I love it. I genuinely love it. Ah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So that means we yeah, have to leave, we it in. leave it in. Um, also, uh, part nine. Right. How did we get to part nine already? Yeah. Oh, I don't know, Andy. The sections got a little away mm. from us last time. I think we I think we actually needed multiple tries just to get started, which probably uh, blame ran you for our that, numbers. But uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's Let's jump in. <laughs> So in this section, a small group of men are going to try to kill Thord Menace. You can get used to hearing that, everyone. <laughs> but uh, first, this part of the saga begins with the disconcerting news that it's time to introduce more characters into the story. Yes, and that's literally what the start of Chapter 6 says. Yeah, and the next few paragraphs give us about a dozen new people to keep track of in five different places. <laughs> that's crazy. So I think we're just going to introduce them very briefly. Briefly is key here. We can offer more details as they become relevant. All right. Uh, so here goes. The first family is a good farmer named Thorvald of Enghild. 
Uh, Thorvald is skilled in the healing arts, and he has two sons, Einar and Bjarni. Now, we've also got Ozur, the Gothi of the upper half of Skagafjord. Uh, Ozur's yet another of Skegi of Midthjord's nephews. He does have a lot of them. He does indeed. Now, this one, uh, Ozur, is a difficult man. He's arrogant, unpopular, unreliable, and uh, deceitful. Uh, we're not supposed mm. to like him, obviously. What's not to like? Well, even his dog doesn't like him, John. <laughs> it doesn't actually say that, but no. it's probably true. <laughs> uh, let's see. We, we've also got a, a Hiltendal farmer named Kalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kalf's got a farm named after him, Kalfstather, and is considered an accomplished man. All right. And then we've also got Thorhall of Miklaber and his wife, Olaf Hrolif's daughter. Uh, Thorhall's a boastful swaggerer who's known to lack courage. And everyone thinks that Olaf is uh, a little bit too good for him. Well, including Olaf. She, she knows she's too good for him. <laughs> As indeed she is. Uh, she's an attractive and strong-minded young woman. And everyone in the area knows that she was married to this much older man, uh, Thorhall, because of money. It's an interesting couple. Yeah. Uh, and we'll finish up with Indridi, uh, a skipper and a good fighter. Indridi has been a business partner and sworn brother of Orm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this would be the same Orm that Thord Menes killed at the end of our last episode. That's the guy, yeah. Uh, the one who was harassing Thord's sister Sigrid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but despite Indridi's bad taste in business partners, he's got a reputation as a decent man. He's arrived in Iceland and is expecting to leave soon on another voyage when he learns about Orm's death. Yeah, he learns about it because Skeggy sends a message that Indri they should come at once if he wants to take a hand in avenging Orm's death. Well, I mean, that's not a good idea. And not a good idea for who? For whom? Well, for Skeggy. He's got, he's got to know this is a dangerous thing for him to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it is. Uh, so, yeah, just to remind everyone to catch you up, it's been a while. Um, Skeggy has been held back from acting against Thord Menace because Skeggy's son, Aeth, is Thord's foster son. Right. And he's more than just a foster son. He's also indebted to Thor for saving his life when Aeth nearly drowned and then for giving him the short sword, Gamla's Gift. Yeah. And he considers himself an ally to Thor. And he sided with him against his father when they're in conflict. And as we mm-hmm. saw at the end of our last episode, Skeki simply can't attack Thorth without his son being caught in the crossfire. Kids today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, the, but the point here is that Skeki's had to be very careful to avoid getting his son killed. Right. So goading Orm's business partner into going after Orm is a terrible idea. Even if they are kinsmen, Indridi doesn't care about Aeth. Like at all. Uh... If Indriti attacks Thor, then some punk with a nice short sword gets in the way. There's no reason not to kill him. Yeah, I understand Skeggy's urge to call on Indriti, but he has to know that this puts Aeth in a bad spot. And I have to assume that Skeggy urges Indriti to avoid Aeth if he can. Maybe, but the saga doesn't say anything about that. Well, either way, Indriti wastes no time at all. When he gets the message, he rushes off to find Thor as quick as he can. He takes Mm -hmm. four of his crewmen with him two well-armed Icelanders, and two skilled Norwegian fighters. And the five Mm -hmm. of them begin searching the district for Thorth. Two Norwegians, you say? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, their names are... uh, Hang on a second. Uh, Sigurth and Thorgrim. We should make sure we remember those names. Yeah, no, their names are Red and Shirt. (laughs) Uh, It's been a while since we've had some good old-fashioned Norwegian companions. Yeah, well, it's possible these two aren't going to be in the saga for long. (laughs) <laughs> it's possible these two shouldn't buy green bananas. But all right, 
Uh, now we get to one of the great split action pieces that uh, that are a hallmark of saga writing. Because while Skeggy is riling up Indridi and setting him loose, uh, Thor and Aeth has been, have been busy. Aeth tells Thor that he should leave the district right away, and Thor says, I'll heed your advice, but I don't think much of leaving my home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Aeth says, You'll have to put up with it for now. I know my father's resolution. He'll be determined not to let you stay in the district with things as they are between you. Yeah, so Thor takes this advice, but he won't let anyone travel with him so that they won't be in danger if there's any trouble. He just grabs his weapons, jumps on his horse, and he's off. Alone. <laughs> That's important. He's alone. Not a really yeah. not really a good idea in this situation. Nah, not the best one ever. Uh, but he's not just riding around randomly. He's, he's going to visit Thorvald the healer, the farmer. Yeah, the guy who we mentioned earlier, uh, the one with two sons. So does this imply that they know each other? Well, funny story there. Um, no, no, they've never met uh, at all. In fact, Thor has to travel with a guide just to find the way to Thorvald's farm. So it's pretty clear they're not close. So this this is an odd choice then. Thor's mm-hmm. trying to get clear before Skeggy can kill him or hire someone else to do the job. So why go see this guy in particular? Well, Thor's not a fool, for one thing. He, he knows there may be some violence in his short-term future. So cultivating a friendship with a healer is probably a wise investment of time. True, true. Uh, and once he's caught his breath, uh, Thor tells Thorvald that he'd like to travel north to Kolbensaros to see about getting a ship to take him out of Iceland. And when Thorvald questions him about why he wants to go, Thor replies with two verses. I'm just going to read the second one. I know the kinsman will chase the champion of Serpent's Land and want to whack me with weapon dues wand. Whether I'll run when mighty Skeggy wields his sharp edge in this game of sword land, I cannot say. Hmm. A pretty standard verse, really? Well, except it's a little unusual for a verse to raise the possibility of the poet running from a battle. <laughs> there is that. I mean, is he being ironic or sarcastic? I mean, I don't get the impression that Thor is plagued by self-doubt in this saga. Oh, not at all. Not at all. And as much as Thor talked about honor and fighting in the previous chapters, he's not one to seek out a fight just for the sake of it. And I think this reflects that. Leaving the region Mm -hmm. now saves him the trouble of killing anyone else, or so he seems to hope. But as you were saying, the fact that Thor is cultivating a friendship with a skilled healer suggests that he's at least concerned about the likelihood of violent injury for himself or... Maybe others. Right. Maybe, maybe not. We'll, we'll see what Thorth wants a healer for soon enough. So Thorth rides north, accompanied only by Thorvald's son, Aner, who's serving as a guide. They ride for a while, but as they approach Arnestapi, uh, Thorth suddenly grows tired and says that the fetches of his enemies are after him. Yeah, that's a motif we've seen several times before. Uh, a sudden bout of exhaustion that strikes just before an attack. Uh, usually they blame it on the Deesir or the family spirits of your enemies. Yeah, now the problem uh, with this for me is that this is a really kind of out there moment for this saga, right? This is a saga mm-hmm. that really doesn't have a lot of uh, supernatural moments at all. Right. Uh, it's a very strange kind of moment to have him suddenly overcome by what he thinks are the spirits of his enemy's family. Uh, but uh, the narrative just kind of passes it by, right? Maybe it isn't thought of as being all that supernatural, right? It's just a part of saga lore. Mm-hmm. Uh, either way, as Thor wilts, uh, the narrative flips back to Indridi and his posse, who come riding from the north toward the same pass that Thor has just crossed. 
It's not long before they spot two men resting on the side of the path. And now the narrative comes back to Thorth, who's spotted Indridi at the same time that they've spotted him. Thorth watches him for a minute and says, Who are those men? And Einar, Thorth's guide, says, Well, if the one with the red shield isn't Indridi, Orm's foster brother, then I don't trust myself to recognize a man. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, it may be that Indridi intends to fight me. Now, what sort of help can I expect as far as you're concerned? Ah, oh, well, I'm not really a fighter, and I can't stand the sight of blood. So... Ah, yeah. okay, that's not great. No, he doesn't say that. I mean, no. the, 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 Anar definitely says he's not a, he doesn't like the sight of blood, but uh, I yeah. don't think he says yeah. that's not great. Yeah, no, he just grumbles about Anar being a coward and gets his weapons ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going for the gist. You got the gist. Um, speaking of getting the weapons ready, we do get a detailed description of both Thorth and Indri's war gear in this saga. Mm-hmm. See, Thorth has a shield and a helmet for protection, and he fights with a sword in one hand and a spear in the other. And Indrithi has his red shield, a cool helmet, an oversized crookspilt, or a barbed spear, and he also carries a sword. So this mm-hmm. is a fairly well-balanced fight. I, well, except that Indridi also brought four more guys. Well, um, you know. And Thor's got Einar, who's squeamish about blood and doesn't carry weapons at all, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's actually kind of an interesting thing to find someone in the saga who just knows himself and says, Nope, squeamish non-combatant over here. Go on. Yeah, no, I agree. It's interesting narratively. It's just a little awkward for Thor. Definitely. But uh, there's no time to dwell on it because the two sides have already reached each other. And Indridi calls out, Thord. Could you tell me what's keeping Orm? Orm? Oh, he bought himself a little place on Midfjarnus. Good one, Thord. I like it. You'll be winning yourself a notable witticism trophy if you keep that up, Thord. I got to tell you. Uh-huh. That's gold. Uh, now, Thorth, after, after, once he's gotten that off his chest, Thorth does tell Indridi about the killing and then adds, And you're hardly likely to get a better chance for revenge than you've got right now. And that's about it for the Battle of Wits. Uh, Sigurd mm-hmm. the Norwegian, who's fighting with a spear, leaps ahead of the others and stabs at Thorth, but his spear deflects off the shield and sticks in the ground. Sigurd stumbles slightly, and Thorth comes over the top of the spear straight at him, chopping Sigurd in half above the hips. Pretty good stuff. Cuts him in half horizontally. Yes, he uh, does. I think you mentioned last time that this is kind of Thor's signature move. Right above the hip bones thing. Yeah, yeah. This is already the third time we've seen him do that, and we're only in Chapter 7 of this saga. Mm-hmm. And it also means we've got a dead Norwegian companion. Mm-hmm. And Thor's just getting started. One of the Icelanders, a man called Thorfinn, then stabs at Thor from the side. He manages to chop off a large crescent from Thor's shield, but Thor spins and hacks off the Icelander's leg right above the knee. Two down, three to go. Right, and at this point, Thor taunts Indridi, goading him to fight harder if he hopes to avenge his partner. And so Indridi charges. The two of them are very evenly matched. They battle ferociously for several minutes. Both men take serious injuries. But finally, Thor cuts Indridi down and leaves him, as the saga tells us, with his wounds gaping on the ground. Yeah, it's not exactly clear what Thorgrim the Norwegian and the other Icelander have been doing this whole time. <laughs> but now Thor attacks them where they stand, and both men are quickly killed. That's quite a day's work. Yeah, he's uh, been now, busy. Once the bat- yeah, uh, once the battle's over, Thor collapses to the ground himself and begins binding his wounds immediately because mm-hmm. he's he's taken several serious blows and he's bleeding badly. Yeah, not as badly as Indri, who's actually still alive somehow. 
Whoa, the man had gaping wounds and yeah. gaping wounds. How alive is he? Some somewhat somewhat alive, I guess. Uh-huh. Um uh he he's he's not quite dead yet, I think is the the, oh, the phrase we usually use. Um I'm I'm uh-huh. not sure what the survival rates are for men in the sagas with multiple gaping wounds. Uh but I'm guessing it's not high. Well, then this is Indridi's lucky day. Yeah. Uh, once Thor ties all his own parts back together, he staggers over to Indriti and says, So, do you think you'll live? I think there's some hope of it if a, a healer sees me. Yeah. And a big flashing sign reading plot point drops from the sky with great fanfare. Yeah. Uh, but Thor's not doing plot work today. Uh, he just loads Indriti on a horse. And leads the horse back to Thorvald's farm. Yeah, and that's uh, we'll the uh, that's the the picture that we have from Scarpathen Illustrator, uh, right? Uh, this time around. So if you go to our show notes, right. you'll see a picture of uh, of Thor standing there with Indri the on the horse. There's also <laughs> barely quite a few standing himself. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now we'll skip a few details here, but the upshot is that this is the Miracle Max moment. Right? Uh, he brings him to Thor Thorvald, who's able to heal Indri, but Thor chooses to follow his original plan. And he doesn't wait around to be healed. He heads north to find a ship. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Indridi is grateful to Thor for not leaving him to die with the rest of his crew. Right, which is, I mean, a morally reasonable position in one respect. But it does mean now that Indridi owes Thor the huge debt. And he pays that debt by switching sides. Just like that? Just like that. Hmm. He is now a charter member of the Thor Menace Action Team. I guess, I guess it makes some sense. Thor could easily have left him to die, so, you know. Yeah, and this is something of a pattern that Thor is trying to develop. Uh, remember in our last episode, Thor gained the loyalty of Aethskegison by rescuing him from death. Mm-hmm. So he kind of is surrounding himself with people who owe him their lives. Uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that. But for now, uh, Indri proves his newfound loyalty by telling Thor where he can find another healer once he gets up north. Yeah, and there's another thing. Now that Indri has turned informant, he tells Thor that he wasn't the only one looking to avenge Orm. The mm-hmm. Gothi or chieftain Ozor Arngrimson, who is yet another of Skegia Mithior's nephews, is also looking for revenge. And he's got far more men and resources than Indri had. Yeah, Thor's getting popular. For a given value of popular, anyway. Yeah. And so Thor rides off again. And by riding mm-hmm. gingerly, he manages to get to the farm at Miklaver at Osland up north. And this is where Indri had told him to go. And that's where he sees the farmer as he rides onto his property. Okay, yeah, this is Thorhol. Uh, yeah, Thorhol has heard of Thorth, and mostly what he's heard is that trouble follows this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he asks a few questions of Thorth, but conspicuously does not invite him inside. Yeah, Thorhol's not the kind of guy to go looking for trouble, but he does eventually realize that Thorth's badly injured. Uh, but when he points it out, Thorth just says, it's only a few scratches, no big deal. The man's got multiple sword and spear wounds. Tis but a scratch. Yeah, tis rapidly approaching a critical level of blood loss, actually. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, actually. Um, Thord's ridden a long way without getting medical attention at all. Yeah, well, fortunately for him, Thorhall's wife Olaf comes out of the farmhouse. And unlike Thorhall, who's perfectly happy to casually pass the time of day, Olaf actually insists on helping Thord, who, again, is still leaking from various places. So instead of leaving Thor dripping blood on her doorstep, she acts decisively by immediately taking Thor in and tending to his wounds. Yes, and this is Olaf Hrolif's daughter, who we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. 
She's the one who's way too good for her husband. Way too good. Yeah. But I don't want to be too harsh on Thorhall here. Uh, they've heard of Thorth, which means that they also know that Thorth's got powerful enemies. And one of those powerful enemies is Ozer the Gothi, who lives not at all far away at Thera. Thorhall's just a, fa- a small farmer. He's not looking to pick a fight with the most powerful man in the area. Right, which is why his wife advises him to keep his big trap shut about Thorth being in their house. Which he does. Right, yeah, and it's it's quite a space of time before Thorth is actually able to get back on his feet and is fully healed. It takes most of the autumn. He was actually mm-hmm. pretty badly cut up. Uh, but once he does heal, he offers to leave the farm to avoid endangering Olaf and Thorhall. Yeah, but Olaf didn't put all that work into patching him up for nothing. No, I, I want you to stay here until this matter is resolved, one way or another. Yeah, and Thorhall is slightly less pleased. Yeah. He, uh, he likes Thorth, but he also reminds his wife that Ozer the Gothi is looking for Thorth and is very, very angry. Yes. But he gives in, and Thorth will be living with them for a bit. Uh, he does start to go out once in a while, though. And one day he rides out to the shore where he tracks down Indridi's ship. Indridi is actually there. Uh, he's also recovered and he's preparing to sail out. Yeah. And he says, you should sail with me, Thord. We can't get to Norway, since so many of Orm's relatives hold positions of power there, but otherwise you're safe. Oh, and since no one could find you over the past weeks, I've made amends for all the killings you committed during our battle and paid for the dead out of my own money. Yeah, Indridi's really all in on this whole newfound loyalty program. Yeah. Uh, Thorth doesn't go with him, but does give him an arm ring to seal their friendship. Nice. Uh, Indridi sails out and is now, as they say, out of the saga. Mm-hmm. And Thorth returns to Olaf and Thorhall's farm. That was actually a surprisingly peaceful ending to that part of the story. I like it. Yeah. Don't worry. It won't last. Mm. Part 10. May the odds be ever in your favor. So here's a change of pace, Andy. In this section, mm. a small group of men are going to try to kill Thord Menace. Well, if at first you don't succeed, etc. I'm not sure if that applies here, since nearly everyone who tries ends up dead. And that's more or less the end of trying, really. <laughs> Trying in the broader collective sense, John. Uh, These are team players, you see. There's no I in ambushers, one might say. (laughs) That is phonemically accurate. (laughs) Uh, There's also no I in collateral damage, which is probably a more accurate description of most of these triers. (laughs) Wait, I should probably think that through. There's no no (laughs) I in collateral damage. (laughs) There's not, no. Uh, So let's meet this round of would-be assassins, shall we? Uh, Who's on stage? Right. Word gets around that Thorth is living at Olaf and Thorhall's farm, despite I Olaf's thought they were supposed to be quiet to about it. I know, yeah. but you know, people talk. People, uh, people like to whisper. You know that mm. Icelandic grapevine we talk about. Uh, so uh, most people who learn about this are actually happy about it, and Thorth makes a few friends in the neighborhood. One gives him a horse called Svidrimer. Uh, another, mm. Kal from Kalstather, invites Thorth and Thorhall to attend his Yule party. We love a good Yule party around here, don't we? We do. And so does Thorth, who accepts the invitation happily. But hmm. as he and Thorhall are getting ready to leave, Olaf tells him to watch out. She says, take special care because Ozer from Thera is looking for you. He's vowed to avenge Orm. Now, Thorth says he plans to attend anyway, and Thorhall then chimes in. You'll find that I lack neither common sense nor cunning if Ozer should turn against you. 
Olaf isn't impressed by the voice or the substance of his comments. How are we impressed with that? (laughs) Oof. She says, no, I mean, again, I'm just doing basically a man's voice for Olaf. So, you know, who who am I to talk? Uh, Olaf says, Thor, I don't think you should set much store by Thorhall's wisdom or initiative. But go ahead and try his courage out from time to time as you need to. Madam, be sure we haven't (laughs) abandoned our strategy of resilience. Even if there should bear out to be no small difference in the size of our forces. To hell with your boasting, Thorhall. Oh. Thord, I advise you not to count on my husband's valor. Well, this is turning a bit awkward. <laughs> uh, mm. Thorth just clears his throat and mumbles, he'll prove himself reliable, I'm sure. See, what what I enjoy about this is the buildup and the inner workings of this little family. Mm-hmm. All we know at this point is that Thorhall says he'll be a help to Thorth, and Olaf clearly thinks he's pretty useless. And she knows from experience. But we don't actually know which of them is right. At least not yet. Now, if you turn this into a Schrodinger's cat reference, I may or may not have to kill you. Well, there's only one way to find out, isn't there? Hey! Hey! (laughs) See, I set him up, you knock him down. All right, uh, the trip to Kalfstadler is uneventful, and the Yule party is a great success. But not, not everyone at the party is happy about Thor being there. Someone, I don't actually believe we ever find out who, is there spying for Ozer. Ozer calls his cousin Hafthor, a skilled fighter named Orn, and 15 other men. And all 18 of them ride out to ambush Thor. 18? That's a lot of men. Yep. That's a couple tons of men there, John. <laughs> can we do that? Are we are we measuring attack parties in tons now? Can we, oh, can we list them in stone? In hundredweight? <laughs> Cubic footage of water displacement, perhaps? Ooh, hogsheads. I've always wanted to measure something in hogsheads. A lot of men is the point, especially to kill just one guy. Well, I mean, that many men does seem intended to make a point. It's sort of a, we will grind you into a thin paste kind of statement. Mm-hmm. And two tons of attackers apparently make a dent in the local dreamscape because Thord has himself a prophetic dream the night before his trip home. He sure does. Uh Let's see if you can interpret this one, John. Oh, boy. Thor dreams of 18 wolves that attack his traveling party. Mm -hmm. Most of his men are killed, but Thor himself kills many of the wolves and is just getting the upper hand on the largest wolf when he suddenly wakes up. Oh, boy. Okay, so this one is pretty straightforward, especially since the author didn't leave anything to chance. He he literally just told us about the 18 guys (laughs) Ozer's riding out with to kill Thor. Yeah, and you know he used wolves in the last dream. Yeah, uh, the one about the you know the, one the mix up yeah. your dream sequences here, buddy. It's I know little repetitive. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Kalf hears Thor's dream and tries to dissuade him from traveling because yeah. Kalf can interpret dreams pretty pretty well. Uh huh. No, no, but Thor's not having any of that. Or at least you know send some spies ahead on the road. Maybe what for? No, it's fine. More men, at least? I mean, Kalf can, can send some more men with him. Maybe that. Ridiculous. Not to be thought of. Mm. So at some point, Kalf just gives up and lets him go. And Thor's not alone, though. One of Kalf's farmhands, a strong man named Hall, uh, joins along on this journey. Um, as does a farmer named Avend, who was another guest at the party. And he kind of hit it off with Thor. So we got a couple guys with him. Right. And he's also got five of Thorhall's servants with him. And, of course... He's got Thorhall himself. Thorhall. 
the man who might or might not be useful in a fight. Not a great epithet, but, you know, that's nine men altogether. We'll just Yeah, yeah. Uh, And Kalf's also sent a spy on ahead. Yeah, I I thought we agreed that was unnecessary. Why why is the spy going up? Kalf disagreed. (laughs) Oh, okay. He he decided differently. Uh, Anyway, Kalf's spy comes riding back and meets up with Thor's group not long after they set out. He actually confirms there's a group of 18 men waiting to ambush them up on Guardsvam up the road. And that the men are led by Ozer the Gothi. Thorth just says, Hmm, this is a chance for you men to test your boldness and your skill in arms. And Thorhall speaks up. Oh, he talks like a... Like that, right? Like an old prospector. (laughs) It's not a good idea to fight them, as there are so many of them. I'd advise another plan. We should go up <laughs> over the ridge there and over to Gold. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, your Thorhall is like an even more shrill Don Knotts, and I didn't know that was a thing that could be. You, you just indicated he's you like an old prospector. Something. You said an old you think prospector. Don, you think Don Knotts is an old prospector? <laughs> no, you told me to do Thorhall like an old prospector. Yes. But you've chosen so I, a shriller so I Don him over. Knotts. <laughs> Oh, why don't you read it then? No, you got <laughs> No. No, let me finish the line. He, he says, we should go up over the ridge. <laughs> now I can't do it, you idiot. Thanks a lot. Now you can't do it? <laughs> now I can't. <laughs> we should go up over the ridge there and over the Colmaine's dog. <laughs> Go on. It's not even a funny line. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll ride home without them ever seeing us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think the odds are against us, even if they have 18 against 9 of us. I won't run away without even trying my strength against them. So essentially, Thor doesn't actually know how odds work. Oh, maybe he's letting his bravado write checks that all his friends are going to have to cash in a minute. I mean, I think those are both possibilities. I think so. And Thorth tries to make the odds even worse. He tells Avon the farmer to go home since this isn't his fight. And he tells Thorhall to stay out of the fight as well since I won't repay your wife for your hospitality by putting your life in danger. What a sweetie. Right. And Avon is absolutely sticking around for the fight and he says so. He's actually a little bit insulted that he's asked to leave. Thorhall, though, says... All right, if that's the way you want it. And he beats feet to the back of the group with great, almost unseemly haste. (laughs) The rest of the group then race to a rise on the edge of the path, where they start piling rocks for a defense. Yeah, and once Ozo realizes his ambush is no longer a surprise, he and his men run to the spot, and Ozo shouts, Is Thord Menace up there on that hill? He is, Thord calls back. And I suggest that you avenge your kinsman Orm now. For if there's any courage in you, the odds are strong enough in your favor. You see, he does know how odds work, John. (laughs) Inconsistently, but sure. Yeah, so this is all sounding awfully familiar. Yeah, no, at some point there's a certain uh, needle-skip deja vu about the episodes in this saga. Mm -hmm. It's a real weakness of the story as it goes on. I mean... It, yeah. it turns into a bunch of stories about vicious battles, which ends, which tends to be a crowd pleaser. But mm-hmm. it's not all that impressive narratively, especially given the the opening of this saga. Right now, when you say crowd pleaser, do you mean crowd pleaser for a contemporary audience or for the podcast audience? Hmm. 
Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, there's something in that, I suppose. Uh, now, let's try to get back to this later on, because I think there's there's a real problem here as we go forward. But for now, there's a battle afoot. Thorth and his crew start pitching jagged rocks down on Ozer's men. Thorth kills one man with a well-aimed stone, and a couple of other men in Ozer's group are also killed by the rocks before they can get their shields up for protection. Now, once the stones run out, Thorth leads a charge down the hill, and as the author tells us, the slaughter began. Mm. Now, things start going wrong for Thorth pretty much right away. Thorth attacks Hafthor, Ozer's cousin, but Orn the champion slashes at his thigh and cuts him badly. Thorth twists around a bit awkwardly, but he's able to backhand chop at Orn. And stop me if you've heard this one, John. Uh, he chops Orn in half. Chops Orn in half, yeah. That's what it says, yes. Yeah, while off balance and standing on a badly slashed leg. That's the story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, um, it's lucky for Thor that so many of his enemies seem to be made of easily cut soft dough or something. <laughs> really, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, Thor then ducks under Hafthor's counterattack and slashes his arm off. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Hafthor falls to the ground and dies of blood loss at some point during the battle. So that's both of Ozor's close champions uh, killed in less than 30 seconds. Yep. But Ozor still has the advantage of numbers, and he rushes Thorth with five new men. Now, Thorth kills three of them and wounds Ozor badly enough to knock him out of the fight, but he suffers several more wounds himself along the way. Right, and around them, both sides are losing men to injuries or death. Eventually, everyone has taken wounds, and 14 men altogether are dead. Nine of Ozer's men and five of Thor's. The rest of Ozer's men run off with injuries, but Thor's remaining few men are all too badly hurt to chase them. Uh, Avon, the farmer, does survive, and of course, Thorhall survives since he avoided the fighting entirely. And so his wife was right about not counting on him for help in a fight, wasn't she? How dare you? Uh, I will see. Uh, he wasn't much help you? in this fight, certainly. Uh, yeah. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before, Andy. Uh, but Thor lifts Ozer up and protects him from being pecked at by ravens, thus saving him from the battlefield. And Ozer can barely move, but he does open his eyes, not plucked out by ravens, mm -hmm. and he says, You don't need to offer me healing, since I'm going to kill you as soon as I have a chance. So, less of a chance of a reconcilement this time. Not much, no. No, but let's see how the healing yeah. goes. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, Thorth has a policy of trying to save the life of people who lead ambushes against him. Uh, so he sends for Thorgrim the Healer, his go-to mm -hmm. guy for patching up his enemies, and then returns with Thorhall to the farm at Miklaber, where Olaf once again nurses him back to health. And when she asks him about the fight, Thorth speaks a verse. Fifteen fell when spears clashed. Moon trees of the Sea King's land, and seven spruce of the Sea Steed were sorely wounded. I slew six men, holders of the land where flame barbs lie, and wounded a vainglorious wretch. Ozur was his name. Now, I think we said this last time, but Thorth's sort of a middling talent as a poet. Yeah, he's not awful, but he's not great. I mean, he knows how to construct a canning. But that's about as far as he goes. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while since we've explained that term, I think. I uh -huh. mean, I, I did just cover it literally like 
a couple days ago with my BritLit survey students, but <laughs> we haven't talked about poetics here for a, for a while. Maybe okay. we should. Uh, yeah. Uh, so a kenning is a kind of metaphorical riddle used by poets. There are usually fa- phrases uh, composed of a base noun followed by a qualifying possessive noun. Right. Like steed of the sea from this poem or elsewhere we see the draft of Odin. Right. Exactly. Uh, and sea steed in this case means ship, right? The things people ride across the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, Odin's draft is a clever way of saying poetry without saying poetry. But to understand a kenning like that, one usually needs to recognize and interpret some fanciful narrative element attached to it. Right? In the case of uh, Odin's draft, it's a reference to a mythical story about Odin and the mead of the gods. Uh, now, as if all that wasn't difficult enough, in Icelandic verse, kennings are often extended and complicated through the use of a second or third layer of metaphor. Yeah, so in this poem, holders of the land where the flame barbs lie is an extended kenning. Mm -hmm. Flame barbs are swords or spears. The land where swords and spears lie is the battlefield, and the holders of that land are the warriors. Mm -hmm. So when he says, I slew six men, holders of the land where the flame barbs lie, he's just saying warriors or men. Right, which he's already done by saying, I slew six men. (laughs) Right, Uh, right. Now, the reason that Thord's poetry is good but not great is largely because he focuses... I would say almost exclusively on variation, I think on that's coming right, yeah. up with, with different metaphorical names for the same thing. This verse, for example, has three different kennings for men or warriors in eight lines, plus line five, as we said, where he clearly just shrugs and calls the men men. Yeah. Uh, one other thing. Uh, yeah. There is a counting error in the first line, I think. Oh, yes. Yes, there is. Yeah. Thorth says 15 men died in his poem, but... The narrator describing that scene clearly said nine of Ozer's men and five of mm-hmm. Thor's. Now, yep. I'm no accountant, and you know I I'm know. pretty bad at math, but I can get up to 15 pretty easily. That's not 15. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's definitely a problem, but I think that's a problem we can save for judgments. Mm. Uh, right now, both Thor and Ozer need to spend a winter healing, which is just enough time for us to announce... Part 11. Wait, wait again? So, here's a change of pace, Andy. In this section, hmm. a small group of men are going to try to kill Thord Menace. Well, if at first you don't succeed, etc. Yeah, I'm not sure. Wait a second. Isn't this what we said at the start of the last section? Okay, campers, rise and shine. And don't forget your booties, because it's cold out there today. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? Not hardly. And you know, you can expect a group of men to try to kill Thord later today because of that, uh, you know, that, uh, that orm thing. Well, that's unsettling. (laughs) But... We did it, and uh-huh. now we're here. Let's not look back. Let's just get on with it. <sighs> so Ozur and Thorth recover from their wounds. But if Thorth's expecting Ozur to let bygones be bygones, he's misjudged a few things. Yeah, I don't know that he does. It, it just seems to be a principle of his that he doesn't leave a wounded enemy to be pecked by ravens. Hippie. 
<laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> that's actually a pretty basic moral position, but I suppose we've seen men who don't follow it. Quite a few. Anyway, even if things aren't forgiven and forgotten, there's at least a respite since Ozor needs longer than Thor to heal. Yeah, and in fact, to fill his free time, Thor manages to find a job. A farmer named Thorgrim hires him to build a longhouse at Flatatunga, which is at the northern end of Skagafjord. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We're going to have to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the longhouse, point. you mean. That's yeah, the construction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can we can come back to it, but okay, there's some sure. interesting stuff out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a big job, uh, and Thorith has a small crew of men helping him. He spends the entire summer working on the construction, uh, but he's running short of wood. So when he hears about a merchant ship that's just come in at Edifjord, he takes three workmen with him and goes to buy all the best lumber that he can find for the construction. Yeah, and this is something we're always being reminded of in the sagas in different ways, that mm-hmm. there's a lack of wood for building in Iceland by the late 10th century. There's an attention to material culture in this saga that we don't usually see, and I really like that. Mm-hmm. And it's especially true when it comes to carpentry and the acquisition of wood. Right, it's more than just wood, too. Overall, the theme of dearth, of, of ba- barely scraping by, uh, that theme comes up over and over again. Uh, for all that saga authors looked back on the saga age with nostalgia, they often didn't shy away from just how difficult life was. Yeah, well, it works out for Thor on this occasion, right? A well-timed ship, and he's got all the lumber he needs. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he's able to get so much wood that he needs a caravan of horses to lug it all back to the farm. Right. Now, keep in the back of your mind that Thor specifically went there looking for the best wood. He's being very particular about building this hall. Yeah, and he seems to know when the good wood is arriving, or else he keeps an ear to the ground for news of ships bringing supplies of good wood. Right. He no, likes I, his good wood. I actually, I, I do think there's something to the idea of knowing it in advance. Uh, there would have been a fair amount of traffic shipping goods between Norway and Iceland. And, you mm-hmm. know, being able to provide a regular, reliable shipment of wood arriving around the same time each year, that would almost create its own clientele. Yeah, but it doesn't need to be announced in advance, right? No. I mean, by the late 10th century, you've got new waves of immigration and virtually no domestic wood supplies. The market for wood had to be fierce in Iceland. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just speculating. The sagas Mm. don't usually tell the stories of people who do a competent job of being reliable merchants, though. So it does have to be speculation. Yeah, that lacks a certain something. Yeah, it lacks narrative tension is what it lacks. Yes, join us for the saga of Bjorn the Fair Dealer. <laughs> yes, essentially, yeah. Uh, but okay, so Thor is leading this lumber caravan back to Flatatunga, but he doesn't actually get all the way back to the farm. Because just as they're coming within sight of home, as they're passing along the gravel banks of a shallow river near Nordurudal, a dozen men leap out of hiding and charge toward them. Thor recognizes the leader as Ozur, who's now fully recovered from his injuries. And hey, an ambush actually worked. Mm, sort of. Ozor isn't exactly Francis Marion here, John. They jump out a little early, and Thorth not only sees them coming, he has time to dismount. Time to get his shield in position. Time to tell the three workmen that they don't need to put themselves into danger on his account. But all three men say they'd curse any man who stood aside when Thorth needed help, and they all dismount and grab their swords as well. And then the ambushers arrive. Uh, okay. Yeah, I see your point. It's not a flawlessly mm-hmm. executed plan. But I'm still counting it as an ambush. Partly because Thorith does too. He says, Ozur, 
You haven't give up ambush. You haven't give up? <clears throat> Don't you give it up. He says, Ozur, you haven't given up ambushing me, eh? I thought you'd remember our last meeting better. I told you then that I'd never be well disposed toward you if I lived. And I plan to fulfill that promise. And the two sides crash together. Uh, Thor acts quickest, uh, running his spear through one man, while half a dozen others rush at him. Uh, Thor's three workmen take on the others. Yeah. Meanwhile, from a hill not too far away, a shepherd sees the battle. And it's pretty sure that he recognizes Thor and Ozor among the combatants. He then runs to Flatatunga and tells Thorgrim, the guy that Thor is working for, right, right. Uh, tells him about the fight. And then Thorgrim rushes out with nine men to break up this fight. Right. But by the time they get there, things are grim at the riverbank. There are bloody and hacked corpses everywhere. All three of Thor's companions are down and dead, but so are all of Ozur's 11 men. It's just Ozur mm. and Thor left standing, and Ozur has suffered several injuries. When he sees reinforcements coming, Ozur breaks away, leaps on his horse, and rides off. Yeah. So 14 more men have died. Um, yeah, 14, yeah. Mm. This feud is racking up quite a body count. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, and everything else uh, goes the same way as the last battle. Uh, a mound is raised over the men who fell. Thor composes a B-level verse recounting the action. And Ozur goes off to lick his wounds. Yeah. And Thor, who seems to have gotten through this battle without any serious harm, stays on and finishes the longhouse that he mm -hmm. was building. And it's a good one. The saga author makes note of this. He writes, It was a remarkably strong structure and was still standing when Eil was bishop at Holar. Right. Now, he's talking about uh, Eil Eilfson's tenure, which uh, is probably not long before this saga gets written down. We're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit later, I think. You can't threaten me with a good time, John. <laughs> so Thor finishes the hall, and when it's done, he accepts an escort from Thorgrim and his nine farmhands back to Thor Hall and Olaf's farm at Miklebear. Mm. Ozor sees them pass by his land, but he's lost so many men in that ambush that now he can't really muster enough on the fly to attack 11 armed men. Well, now, okay, see, now to your point, that's why you don't jump out of hiding 50 yards away from the person you're trying to kill. Exactly. Now, when Thor returns to the farm, we're told Thorhall gave Thor the warm welcome back and his wife an even better one. Right. Now, that's essentially the saga author nudging you in the ribs and waggling his eyebrows at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the first hint that Thor and Olaf may have feelings that go beyond cordial friendship. Say no more. But if there's any hanky panky, say no more. You like healing, do you? Hey, hey, say no more. <laughs> Only the best would, huh? Say no more, say no more, say no more. <laughs> uh, but if there is any hanky-panky, it's all happening behind a discreetly closed door, and we never hear any word of it. Now, are you trying to start a rumor? Because you got to be careful. I Olaf's trying? a married woman. Well, let's just see how this plays out. Part 12. Oh, God, not again. So, here's a change of pace, Andy. In this section, hmm. a small group of men are going to try to kill Thord Menace. Well, if at first you don't succeed, etc. Wait, wasn't this what we said at the start of the last section? Oh, 
Okay, campers, rise and shine. And don't forget your booties because it's cold out there today. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? <laughs> Not hardly. And you know, you could expect a group of men to try to kill Thord later today because of that, uh, you know, that, uh, that Orm thing. Well, that's unsettling. But we did it, and now we're here. Let's not look back. Let's just get on with it. Andy, I'm scared. Why does this keep happening? And, and since mm. when do we have diegetic music around here? I have forgotten what life was like before people started trying to kill Thord Menace. Did I have a good life? Was I happy? Eh, you were okay. Uh, so <laughs> it was since we better. <laughs> Since we know the pattern by now, we can skip some of the details. Thor is living with Thorhall and Olaf, and both Skegiv Midfjord and Ozur are tracking his movements. They're still out for revenge for the death of Orm. Uh, Orm. And we're told yeah. that Thor has, by this time, become very well known throughout the area. Which isn't surprising, really. Yeah. He's the guy who keeps being at the center of battles with a high body count. That sort of thing gets a fellow noticed around Iceland. Yes, it does. Around most places, to be honest with you. Sure. Uh, and meanwhile, Thor is just trying to live a peaceful life. He's helping Thorhall and his friend uh, Avind, the farmer, with their work. And one day, the three of them are getting ready to go bring in the hay. Thor wants to go see his horse, Svithgrim. But Thorhall really wants to get that hay because the cold weather's coming in and there's already snow in the highlands. His, uh, his what now? His, his horse. Uh, Thor has this horse, Svidgrimmer, uh, the one the friendly oh, farmer right. gave him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah so anyway, right. uh, they're going out hay harvesting in the morning, and Thor warns the others that he expects trouble if word gets out that he's away from the farm. It won't surprise me if we have to deal with other people on this job. And somewhat predictably, Thorhall pipes up, You needn't fear. I won't give up, not even if we're badly outnumbered. You know, I know Thorhall's kind of a blustering coward, but I gotta say I'm a little bit fond of him. He's he's so refreshingly devoid of self-knowledge. He, he is. Well, it seems like Thor agrees with you because he's just all smiles and uh, indulgent. And he says Thorhall will be a great help as long as he stays by Thor's side. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, Thorhall's wife Olaf is somewhat less tolerant of his eccentricities and says, Oh, to hell with your boasting. I seem to remember that Thor got not much help from you last time he needed you. Oh, the woman who got married off to you got a bad deal. You're both <laughs> boastful and cowardly. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, there isn't an untrue word in what she said, but it's a bit harsh in front of his friends and everything. Come on. <laughs> you, uh, you think they don't know? <laughs> oh, this is awful. Well, be that as it may, Avond and Thorth aren't the only two to hear this little bit of marital trouble. Mm-hmm. There's also a vagrant on the farm who's been begging door to door, and he hears all of this. And then later, he walks to Ozor's farm, where he tells Ozor everything he heard at Thorhall's farm, including the fact that Thorth, Thorhall, and Avon will be alone in the fields, bringing in the hay all that day. See, loose lips sink ships. Although, in this case, I think it's more... Vagrants hoping for a tip for narking on the neighbors sink ships. (laughs) Well, at this point, Thorth knows he's likely to run into trouble any time he steps away from the farm. Mm -hmm. So he and Avon are fully armed. But Thorhall is looking nervous. So they leave him behind in a yard while they round up the horses. 
Right. And we really have to wonder why Thord is going so far out of his way to protect Thorhall from Olaf's contempt. Is it yeah. really just that he doesn't want to deal with the awkwardness of being in a house with an estranged couple? Because uh, as a as an awkward person myself, I would totally understand that. <laughs> well, whatever the reason, it's not going to work out so well this time. Because mm. Thorth and Avon have barely passed out of sight before Ozor and 12 other men ride over a hill and surround the yard. They surround Thorhall, point their swords at him, and ask him where Thorth went. And, well, Thorhall... Thorhall finds unsuspected reserves of bravery leaping no. upon his foes and dying heroically. No, 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 he doesn't. No. He doesn't do um, that. He he resigns himself to his fate with a noble hauteur, justifying Thord's faith in him by dying to protect Thord from his enemies. I appreciate the uh, use of the word hauteur there, uh, but no. Um, and, and this bit is also fun. We've done it, and it's one of my favorites. I'm going to give you one more guess. Uh, he caves immediately and tells them exactly where to find Thor in between whimpering sobs. Mm, that sounds like the Thor Hall we know and love. Yeah. Yes, that's what happens. Now, in fairness to Thor Hall, 13 men with swords is a lot to face down when you're not armed. But is he unarmed? I mean, he's probably got a farming implement or something. Oh, that's true, isn't it? He was going out hay harvesting. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Thor Hall, I tried. Yeah, meanwhile, Ozor isn't impressed with how easily Thorhall gave up his friend. He says, It's bad to have a thrall for a friend. And then he smacks Thorhall over the head with a blunt end of an axe, knocking him out cold. Donk. And then he and his latest crew of killers rush off after Thor and Avond. And the, the narrative now does that perspective switch that this author likes to use in tense situations. Yeah. Uh, Thor and Avond up on an icy hilly slope. Now look down and see a crowd of armed men coming up after them. The two of them climb up onto a crag, a rocky ledge, just as Ozor and his men arrive. And Thorth calls to him, You're putting an awful lot into killing me, Ozor. It wouldn't be a bad thing, I think, if you paid consequences for that. I think we won't both escape with our lives this time. Well, I had no plan to let you get away with your deeds any longer anyway. So that works for me. And with that, the 13 men rush the crag. Huh. In related news, rush the crag is the name of my new Irish Cayley band. <laughs> Dibs. I like it. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's yours. Anyway, we're, we're off again. Uh, Thor throws his spear right away, trying to kill Ozor, but another man gets in the way and is killed by the throw instead. Meanwhile, Ozor's men are moving fast, and they're up and around both sides of the crag before Thor can do anything else. The first man up bashes hard on Thorth's shield, but Thorth returns a strike and kills him quickly. The next man is barely up over the ledge before Thor slashes him from shoulder to heart. Oof. And then the third man climbs up. Thorth stabs him through the stomach. Meanwhile, Avon hacks down the first man to charge in on his side. And the two of them, Thor and Avon, end up fighting back to back. But Ozur now organizes the remaining men for a full rush. Two more of them are killed, but Avond is badly wounded and falls. The remaining six men, including Ozor, are now pressing forward. But Thorth's stronger position and his skill mean that they can't break through his defense. Right, and at this point, Thorth calls down, It's over, Ozorkin! I have the high ground! (laughs) (laughs) Ozorkin? Ozurkin. He does not say that. <laughs> he 
might as well. As much as I would like to say <laughs> that line was taken from this saga for uh, Star Wars, no, no, right? It's uh, that's not what he says. Yeah, no. What he says is, it's not going so well for you six right now. If I were you, Ozur, I'd do something to make it look less like I was using these men as a shield. I think you alone should attack me and avenge your kinsmen and all the disasters you'd suffered from me. Mm, sick burn, Thor. Good job. Yep. Um, and with that speech, Ozur loses. Speaking of sick, sick burns, I don't know if you know what happened to Anakin after, <laughs> after attacking the high ground. <laughs> Good, fair point, yeah. Now, after that speech, Ozor loses his composure completely. He leaps up onto the crag and swings two-handed at Thorth, chopping a huge chunk out of the shield. But he leaves himself completely undefended in the process, and Thorth swings sidearm into Ozor's ribs, ripping through his chest and breaking the ribs away from Ozor's spine. Oh, this is this is a brutal one, man. Even for even for the sagas, this is a kind of yeah. a rough description of a wound. Yeah. And uh Scarpathan illustrator Scarpathan illustrator um uh Jacob Faust, he illustrated this one and you can find yeah, it in our did. show notes and yeah. we'll be putting it on social media. And the uh, details are pretty are pretty disturbing. <laughs> It's pretty good, yeah. And again, you can you can find all that stuff on uh, Scarpathan underscore Illustrator at uh, uh, Instagram. Um, but anyway, this unsurprisingly, um, especially once you see the picture illustrating it, yep. uh, it's a fatal wound. You know, when your ribs are separated <laughs> from your spine, right? You don't usually recover. Uh, and Ozor falls down the hill, dead. And that's that. Uh, mm-hmm. Ozor's remaining men run down the hill to report Ozor's death, and coincidentally to run away. And Thor, meanwhile, carries Avind home. Uh, Avind's injuries are serious, but he does eventually recover. Yeah, and Avind turns out to be a pretty durable guy in the end. Yeah, no, he is, actually. Uh, and in between applying poultices or whatever to Avind, Olaf asks what happened. And as usual, Thor has a verse ready. Of course he does. Wise gold wreaths willow. Once more have I furnished the guard of the gallows with six spruce of the skirmish. My pride swelled, silken willow, pillow where the sun's arm rests. Ozur gave up the ghost, the seventh tree of burning billow. Again, he's a passable poet. Not as much variation that time. He's Mm -hmm. a little more creative, but he does still literally just say what happens. Yeah, still, yeah, yeah. Uh, There's one Kenning in there I kind of like, uh, Guard of the Gallows, which I know in uh, the translation we're using is glossed as Odin, but which I think is more likely to mean Raven, uh, Hmm. Guard of the Gallows. Uh, But otherwise, uh, Thor's got a tendency to repeat his themes and terms. Yeah. He calls Olaf Willow twice, which is, again, acceptable, not impressive. I, I think mm-hmm. it's interesting, though, in this poem that, you know, in a poem that's boasting about his victory, it's really also a poem uh, that lavishes compliments on Olaf. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you're you're determined to sully the good name of this married woman. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you're referring to. Uh, hmm. Now, we should also point out uh, to to uh, bring our, I guess, qualified praise of this poem back a little bit. Uh, Thorth also uses a kenning for both Olaf and Ozur that is essentially interchangeable. He calls Olaf the wise gold wreath's willow and the silken willow where the sun's arm rests. Right, Both of those are kennings that break down to a metaphor for gold ornament and the person, the woman, as the tree it rests on. 
But then he calls Ozur the tree of burning billow, which breaks down in exactly the same way. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine for this sort of poetry to be confusing, but it's supposed to be confusing in the intricacies of its inventive language and its references, its mm-hmm. allusions. Not confusing because it's not specific enough. Right. But Olaf doesn't seem to mind. Or at least if she does, she doesn't make a big deal of it. She likes his poetry. Uh-huh. You, oh my goodness. Olaf would be entirely justified in bringing you to court for slander. Uh, okay. Now, well, let's just see how it all plays out then. Right. Now, at some point in this story, uh, Thorhall comes wandering in with a big lump on his head. Yeah, we may not know how Olaf feels about Thor's poetry, uh, but we can be pretty sure we know what she thinks of her husband at this point. <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't need to guess at this because she makes it clear that she's not impressed with her husband, especially yeah. when he admits he gave up Thor's whereabouts, which, you know, I guess 10 out of 10 for honesty. Uh, Thor actually has to step in to stop her from divorcing him on the spot. Uh, he says that Thorhall's actions were entirely understandable, and he blames everything on Ozur. It's a pretty generous attitude to take toward a guy who nearly got you killed. Hey, Thor's a generous guy. I-, I know we didn't much like him during the first episode, but he's turning out to be an impressive fella. We didn't like him entirely because of the voice you gave him. You you ruined him. I, I mean, I'm just glad he grew up. Uh, and his voice is finally settled down a bit, and now he can too. Oh, well, good. Uh, but he can't really. No. No, he's not done yet. Ozor may be dead, but unbelievably, there are still more people out there who want to avenge Orm's death for some reason. It's, it's kind of amazing. I mean, Orm was it a is. terrible person. Remember, he tried to steal his own brother's fiance. It's almost I like know- it's a plot device. Yeah, just like that, right? I mean, I understand the <laughs> demands of honor and all that, but at some point you have to ask whether a guy like that was worth all this bloodshed. Well, I mean, it is self-sustaining, right? I mean, that's the problem of the feud mechanism. Every time Thorth kills more men to avoid being killed, he increases the honor debt of his enemies and pushes them to greater lengths to get revenge. Yeah. Now, in the worst case scenario here, and this is getting pretty close to worst case in this saga, a death spiral is created. Right, The fewer active fighting men there are left in a given kin group, the more desperately those survivors need to end the feud successfully to avenge all their lost allies. Yeah, And, of course, now we have to add Ozor to the list of honor debts. Mm. Right, and now with both of them needing to be avenged, everyone in the region is looking at Orm and Ozor's most prominent relative to come after Thor. And that means Skeggy of Midfjord's coming back into our story. All right. At this point... Now, we've kind of been able to, like, put them aside. Aeth and Skeggy have kind of taken this episode off. But at this point, the deficit of honor between um, his family, between Skeggy's family and Thor, is so great, he's not going to be able to ignore it any longer, even if his son Aeth gets in the way. Yeah, but that's not happening this time. Yeah. This time, I think we're going to leave Thor standing around awkwardly while Olaf and Thor all try to work <laughs> out their marital difficulties. Uh, well, hang on. Uh-huh. Uh, before we turn off the lights and roll off the carpet... Uh, we said earlier we were going to talk about the hall, that long house at Flatatunga. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to do that? Uh, I think we'll both have something to say, but you can kick things off. Well, let's start this off by saying that this was prompted in part by Kauri Tulinius, uh, one of our super listeners. Kauri sends us interesting notes from time to time, often with some useful insights from an Icelandic perspective. Which is a perspective we both appreciate and need. Yeah, absolutely. So Kauri contacted us to ask if we'd be talking about the medieval wood carvings at Flatatunga. Uh, hello there, Kauri. And the answer is sure. Yes. 
and sort of. Uh, because when you dangle <laughs> something as interesting as this in front of us, well, we're always suckers for the bait. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Gary. So uh, have we now transitioned into the listener rune sack? Is that what's happening? Yes, that was our transition into the listener yeah. rune sack. Now, there's enough to say here that this is probably our only rune sack offering for the episode. So let's start with Thorth as a skilled carpenter, shall we? Mm-hmm. He worked on building a ferry boat in our first episode, and now he's been hired to build a hall, a longhouse. We should go into all the archaeology about how a longhouse might be designed uh, and built in the century, but it, it's interesting. No, no, we should not. It's interesting stuff, but too much of a rabbit hole for right now. Plus, we're also we're, we're not archaeologists or experts in any way on Viking Age material culture, which we've shown through our ignorance countless times on this program. Sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, the upshot is that this hall could have been built to a number of different shapes and styles, depending on need on the resources available, and, of course, on the preferences and needs of the owner. Yeah. The implication seems to be that Thorth isn't just a strong guy. He's also skilled in the craft of building. And the saga's not explicit about why Thorgrim hires Thorth for this job, especially since Thorth's getting a reputation as the man who keeps surviving assassination attempts that end up with a lot of collateral damage. But he's good at carving ducks on the side or something. Who knows? Right. Yeah, he's he's talented. He's not a fast worker. Remember, he spent an entire summer building a ferry, and now he spent another entire summer building a house. Uh, so he, you know, he does it right. Do you want it done fast? Or do you want it done right, Andy? That's uh, right. Now, the kind of guy, uh, someone like Thor, who comes with this huge target on his back and an enemy in the very powerful and dangerous Ozo the Gothi. Uh, if you're hiring that guy, we have to assume there's some real value-added attraction in bringing him to work on your land. Yeah, so it's reasonable to ask whether he's knowledgeable just about the framework and construction or whether he's overseeing or doing the decorative carving as part of the job. Okay, but again, this is something we'd be speculating about. Yes, they already heard the disclaimer. Uh, Now, we have very few surviving examples of woodwork done during this period, which is obviously not surprising. Mm -hmm. What Kauri is asking about is one of the few examples that we do have of wood carving from this period or near this period. There's a set of four wooden panels that happen to be from Flatatunga, right where yeah. Thorth is building this hall for Thorgrim. Right. Now, first of all, to be clear, the panels aren't anything directly to do with the hall Thorth is supposedly building. They're from at least a couple of generations later, and they're usually associated with a church or a cathedral, not with a longhouse. Yeah, no. But a lot of what we can say about the panels might be considered sort of a context evidence for the sort of work Thorth might be putting into decorating this hall. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there isn't too much we can say about the panels at all. And I want to mm-hmm. really, really underline that medieval art is not one of my specialized fields of study. It was conspicuously absent from my graduate school career, and my reading on the subject since then can charitably be called spotty. Ah, John, since when has ignorance ever stopped us? That is unkind. It's not unfair, but it is unkind. <laughs> So, yeah, the uh, the Flatatunga wood carvings are the set of four carved panels. Um, they're fragments of a larger carved piece that has to kind of be reconstructed uh, mm-hmm. with use of imagination and comparison to other kind of Byzantine-style carvings from that period. And we know that they were stored for centuries as part of a larger set of carvings, but the rest of the collection was destroyed in a fire in the late 19th century. They've been dated to probably the early 11th century, And the best guess is that they were church decorations, possibly from the original cathedral built at Holar. Yeah, I've actually seen them. They're on display at the National Museum in Reykjavik, and they're really very cool. 
They are. Yeah. They're not overly ornate or complicated, though. No, no. I mean, they're done in this uh, sketched, slightly cartoonish style, which is a familiar aesthetic all over Western Europe around mm-hmm. this period. Anyone who's looked at like 10th, 11th century art is familiar with this uh, this look. Uh, obviously, they're very Christian in theme as well, which is not surprising given the Catholic decoration. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Uh, honestly, you'd be forgiven for passing by them in the museum if you didn't know their significance. But they're a rare example of Saga Age carving art, and they show a sure understanding of contemporary iconography. You mean continental iconography? Yeah, yeah, broad Western Christian practice, yeah. Uh, if the dating to the early 11th century is right, and I think it is, that's interesting. Right, right. It shows this us is something. right after the conversion. I think that we should note that. Or, yeah, or just a little bit later, yeah. Uh, now, this is something that other people have gone into in much more depth. Uh, Gudrun Hartha daughter, uh, Thora Christa's daughter, uh, Eric Scheid all have done much more interesting things uh, about this than we're going to be able to do. Right. They have great things to say, and their work is worth looking at. Um, as I always like to say, we'll probably try to put up a few of those things on the yeah, website. But, you know, maybe. What? Uh, now, <laughs> uh, what, we, what we can say for now, having, having read that material and kind of, again, standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, is that the panels offer support to the idea that Icelanders were conversant with trends in continental art and in continental decoration, or else that these panels were carved somewhere else and then brought to Iceland. Yeah, and of course, either one of these is possible. Yeah, for me, the first option is more likely, I think. Uh, We know Icelanders are getting everywhere in this era. Of course they knew what was happening in other parts of Christendom in the 11th century. It's entirely likely that domestic craftsmen would have been hired to produce carvings for the cathedral, or for a longhouse for that matter. Sure. Yeah, the, the second part does raise an important point, though. Icelanders were in constant need of imported wood. We saw that in this episode and in the last episode as well. So it's reasonable to suggest that they were importing worked wood as well, perhaps pre-carved material which could go into the making of a building or into the decoration of a constructed building. Uh, And Scheid makes the point that there are signs of haste in the carvings techniques, um, which suggests a project being completed in situ or with a time limit at least. Look at you, in situ. Uh, Now, I certainly don't think we have to conjecture that entirely. I think there's some evidence here. Remember in the first part of the saga, we saw that a heap of rafters were available for sale at a ship's mm-hmm. bazaar. Not lumber, rafters, right? This was wood that had already been cut, shaped, maybe even decorated, carved by craftsmen who had ready access to the raw materials and who would likely know the way their trade was practiced throughout the continent. Yeah. And we can look at any number of sagas for evidence of the lumber trade in Northern Europe and the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw the economic potential of a new source of lumber in the saga of the Greenlanders. And ships yep. to and from Norway working the lumber trade are pretty regular part of the saga age stories. Yeah, and there's a pretty wild history to this hall that Thor's building it's as well. It's the, uh, the Flatatunga Hall. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the second one yet. We'll talk about that in the next episode. The, the saga author tells us that the hall was still standing in the 14th century. Yes, the Episcopate of Eilfsen. Uh, he was bishop in the 1330s. And I made a note of that, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, that's not coming off the top of the dome. I, I, yeah. Oh, oh, you, you don't have the entire succession of bishops memorized? Not, not all of them. Maybe, maybe just oh, the first two. Sure, sure. You're only human. Uh, okay, so the hall is supposed to be still standing when this saga is written, or thereabouts, because this saga is written, we think, in the 14th century. Well, there's a 17th century writer, Arngrimur the Learned, who is an important figure in the history of Thor's saga. This is the guy who read and described the fragment version of the saga that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Uh, he made something of a study of it. 
and he includes an observation. The remains of Thor's carvings, which decorated the parts of houses, are still visible in Iceland 600 years Mm. later. It's interesting. Now, as Elizabeth Ward says, this is a pretty bold claim for the ability of residual material culture to bear witness to the past. So really, what we can say is that Arngrimmer knew of some woodwork that, by reputation, regionally, was associated with the work of our saga protagonist, Thor the Menace. Right, exactly. For me, this is Ale's skull all yeah. over again from Ale's saga. Right? It's a surviving object that is proof that the sagas are true, but the description in the sagas is what leads to the object being associated with it in the first place. It's not that it can't be evidence, but it's a closed system. It's circular reasoning. We don't actually get any outside confirmation of the material that we're looking at. But our story doesn't end there because of uh, another figure, a 19th century antiquarian named Sigurdr Vigfason. Now, we agreed we weren't going down a rabbit hole on this one, but here we are. Hon- honestly, we, we aren't. Uh, this, there's so much about the material culture stuff that we're only just scratching the surface on Little, little scratched, uh, hasty carvings in situ, if you will. That's right. In situ, in situ <laughs> stuff. Uh, but okay, last thing. So in 1892... Sigurdr Vigvason wrote about examining a hall at Flatatunga, which was supposedly, at least in part, the hall that Thord Menace built there 900 years mm-hmm. earlier. And he says that the oldest wood beams are remarkably thick, with an unusual red color to them. Okay, now, so this is bringing us back to the saga. Thord was mm-hmm. sourcing specifically high-quality wood for this hall that he's been building. Yep. And Sigurdr even suggests that the wood might have come from a special royal forest preserve in Norway. Uh, that's a that's a big claim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but as Ward points out, he really wants to have it both ways. Uh, Sigurdr strongly suggests that Thor built the hall, but elsewhere he admits that most scholars doubt that Thor's saga is based in any kind of historical reality, as we saw in our first yeah, episode. All right. So we're left with a real hall, which might or might not be the same one as described in a probably fictional saga with special wood selected by a man who most likely didn't even exist. Yep. Mm. Nothing like ending with a whimper. <laughs> you know, this is turning into one of those sagas that ends up being less than the sum of its parts. The repetition of battle sequences is pretty deftly handled, I think, but it's still repetitive, as we've suggested in this episode. It might go over well with an audience on a first hearing, but when you start digging into it, well, I don't know that there's really all that much depth there once you get out of uh, Midfjord. Yeah, I I, I think I agree, but I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute here. Uh, These episodes are similar, yes. But we said in the first episode that a mark of quality in the late sagas, specifically, is how well they ring the changes on familiar Mm. themes. These episodes aren't exactly the same. Each battle certainly resembles the last, but the details keep changing. Take Thord's habit of showing mercy to the leader of his enemies. That works out with injury, but Ozur just uses this deliverance from a mortal wound to go right back to trying to kill Thord. And Ozur learns about Thor's movement using the entire bag of tricks we know from other sagas across this episode. Logical reasoning, rumor, spies, accidental knowledge, everything. I know. And and I hate that you're making me do the argument for structure in this saga. But ultimately, John, (laughs) there isn't enough separating these episodes for me. Again, I'm pretty sure I agree with you. Uh, I guess we'll see where we come down on this after the third and final part of this story in our next episode. All right. Great. Uh, Okay, time to wrap this one up, Andy. 
Uh, if anyone else has a question they'd like answered, uh, where can they go to let us well, know? Well, you can email us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com or you can get in conversation with us on Facebook where we are Podcast, or find us on Twitter where we are at sagathingpod or check us out and leave us a message on our WordPress blog which is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Oh, and uh, we've got the Instagram page where we are sagathingpodcast. Right. Or you can... Oh, no. No, no, not not again. A- Andy, quick. We got to end this before a small group of men try to kill Thor right, Menace. All right, all right. Th- thanks for listening, everybody. We're going to be back soon with the third and final episode of Thor Menace. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Bye for now. I got you. So, I don't think we've got too much. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Andy, where are uh, we? I'm not sure. I th- I think we're in the post-music nugget. Oh, God. John, why aren't we done yet? Why are we still here? Andy? Don't, don't say Don't you say it, John. So, here's a change of pace, Andy. Mm. In this section, a small group of men are going to try to kill Thord Menace. Well, if at first you don't succeed, etc. Okay, campers, rise and shine. And don't forget your booties, because it's cold out there today. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? Not hardly. And you know, you can expect a group of men to try to kill Thord later today because of that, uh, you know, that uh, that Orm thing. Well, that's unsettling. <laughs> but we did it. And uh-huh. now we're here. Let's not look back. Let's just get on with it. Ah. <sighs>